This is the Member Maker Podcast presented by Memberspace. Each episode, we'll be interviewing entrepreneurs focused on building an audience and growing their membership business. Our guest today is Christy Harrison, founder of Food Psych Programs, which offers intuitive eating courses and podcasts. Hi, Christy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ward. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, if you could give a quick overview of ChristyHarrison.com and, and what you provide for folks that aren't familiar with you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so ChristyHarrison.com is my online home. It's uh, the portal for everything that I do, which includes my podcast, Food Psych, my writing. I'm a journalist. My original career was as a journalist. Um, and now I'm also a dietitian and I help people make peace with food and learn the um, practice of intuitive eating. So I have, you know, work with me pages and um online courses that I offer through my website. So it's all there. Um, but I have kind of a diverse array of things that I do and offer. So um, that's all housed on my website. Very cool. Uh, could you dive into how you actually began ChristyHarrison.com and how you kind of built that initial audience? Sure. Yeah. Um, so like I said, my first career was as a journalist and most journalists, ha journalists have a website that's just yourname.com, you know, where you put all your writing, sort of a portfolio and ways people can get in touch with you. So that's really how my website started. It was just that, you know, portfolio, a blog, um, just a way to have an online presence. And I think I started it originally back in like 2000 maybe six or seven. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think I started it on like type form or one of those or not type form. I forget what it even was called, but it was one of those really clunky old <laughs> sort of website builders. Um, and eventually started upgrading to, you know, better and better platforms. And around, well, in 2013, I launched my podcast, Food Psych, and I brought it onto my christyharrison.com website as well, sort of gave it a home there. Um, and then I, originally, actually, I think I had broken it out onto its own site, um, foodpsychpod.com, but then I eventually reincorporated it into my website. Um, and so through the process of doing the podcast, it was really bringing together my career as a dietitian and my philosophy around helping people heal their relationships with food with my career as a journalist, because I interview people on the podcast. It's a form of communication. And so it was using those skills. Um, and as I got further and further into the podcast, I started using it as a platform to help um, bring people into my practice, my private practice to work with me. So that was like the first way that I sort of, I mean, it was not even intentionally created as a form of content marketing or to leverage it to get clients. But um, I started it sort of as a labor of love and as a journalistic pursuit and then realized, oh, this is actually a great sort of marketing vehicle for my work and brought people into my business that way. Got a lot of clients, worked with a lot of people one-on-one. -on -one, and I think like many people who do one-on-one -on -one service based businesses, eventually I maxed out my available hours. I had a waiting list. I you know, wasn't able to um, give any more hours than what I had available. And so I started to think about how can I reach more people? How can I create a sort of packaged version of what I do in my one-on-one -on -one work um, for people to connect with me anytime all over the world without me actually having to be there? So that's how my first online course came about, was just thinking through that puzzle. And um, so in 20... 16, I believe. Yeah, it'll be three years 
this April since I created my first online course. Um, it's called Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, which I host on MemberSpace. And um, it's basically sort of what I do with clients in my five-month coaching program or in before that, I, before I had the coaching program, I sort of worked with people in an open-ended way, but I found that like people were generally taking the people who are really flourishing with intuitive eating were generally taking about five months, give or take to sort of get it. And so the course really walks people through the principles and the tools and the strategies and the practices um, that I use with clients in one-on-one work, but they're able to do it anytime, anywhere, um, whenever they, you know, sort of on demand rather than having to wait to work with me. Right. So if we could just take a, a step back again for, so for that, initially you had your website and then you had the podcast. So is that how people initially found out about you was through your podcast? I think so. Yeah. I mean, having a background as a journalist, I did have a bit of a, not a huge email list by any means, but it, like, you know, I had some contacts um, and I had a Twitter following of about like 500 people, I think when I started, it's not huge, you know, but just, I had a little bit of a head start, I guess, with that. Um, and so that was, you know, social media and email were sort of some of the early ways I got people to find out about the podcast, but pretty quickly it started to grow beyond just the people I knew or the people who followed me on Twitter, um, and became, you know, people all over the world discovering the podcast. The podcast really, I mean, it started to grow to like a few thousand people in the first season, and then it really took off in the second and third seasons, kind of exponential growth. Um, and so that was, I think, in a third season is when I launched the online course. So I already had a pretty big audience from the podcast. And then, yeah, that's what brought them in to, to work with me. Interesting. I, I've done a lot of research on this and well, not a lot, let's say a, a bit. And some I hear I hear mixed reviews. Let's put it that way. As far as building an audience with a podcast, I've heard it's it's a good tool to enhance uh, an existing audience and to kind of connect with with people more and and, and have more of a relationship with with your audience. But mm-hmm. as far as building an, an audience initially, I, I have heard it, it's not necessarily the best way to do that. Obviously, there's you're a good counterexample. Um, did, so you had a, a bit of a Twitter following, a bit of an email list. Was it really that simple? Obviously you must've created good content and, and people were simply sharing the podcast with other people and that's how people discovered it. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, obviously nothing is that simple. Right. But like, right. I, I do think, I mean, I had been working for 10 years as a journalist when I started the podcast. So I certainly had a lot of skills that I had developed in communication and marketing through that, like just, you know, being a journal, I was working on the web, like my sort of last full-time job in media was um, as a web editor for a magazine. And so like I knew kind of how to do social media marketing a little bit from that. I knew about um, blogging and email lists and newsletters and stuff like that. So I had a bit of a head start um, on those things, but also like it'll be six years in March that I, since I started the podcast, since I started recording. So, you know, it's been a long build actually. Like it's, it has, it didn't just take off overnight, even though, you know, I did end up, I would say probably growth in the first season, the first couple seasons was exponential. I think just because there was word of mouth, I think people were sharing it with, with their friends. And I do think it's a subject that was not explored enough at the time that I started it. And it still really is a very, untapped um, field that people can, I think there's a lot to be said about people's relationships with food and bodies. And like my approach is very anti-diet. And I think a lot of people have had bad experiences with diets and diet culture. And, you know, when they hear the messages in the podcast, they're like, oh my God, this is what I've been struggling with. And 
you know, haven't been able to really articulate or haven't been able to put my finger on why this is such a problem. But this podcast is sort of putting words to what I've been going through. So I think there was that piece of it, too, is it just like it's a very needed like I, I stumbled into a niche that wasn't really served. Um, and I think I did in the f- probably second or third season start getting a lot of fellow professionals, fellow dietitians, um, therapists and other professionals working in the eating disorder field, sharing it with their clients. So I have people talking, you know, telling me that like they work at a treatment center and they have 25 people in their eating disorder group that they assign the podcast to as homework and they come yeah. in and discuss it, you know, and that's happening at treatment centers around the, around the country, maybe around the, the world. So, um, yeah, I think that was part of it too, was that like it, you know, my fellow health and wellness professionals who work in this space found it to be a good resource and started sharing it. And so that was exponential too. Mm, interesting. So as far as your first sales, it, the, there, there was the podcast, but that obviously would, was free where you were making money initially though, was with uh, individual one-on-one uh, consulting, right? Mm-hmm. And during in the podcast, did you have some kind of a self ad of some sort? Like, oh, if you're interested in this topic more, contact me for for one on one consulting or something like that. Totally, yeah, I would do those self ads, you know, every couple of weeks or whatever. Um, interspersed with, like, in the first season, I did a lot of kind of affiliate marketing for, like, you know, sign up for our Amazon link, you know, through our mm-hmm. Amazon link or whatever it was. Um, and then the self ads were really sort of the first the first that really made any real money, honestly. <laughs> like, right. So they, yeah. were you just kind of trying things with the Amazon ad and, and whatever else? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I mean, the first season I didn't really understand how podcast advertising worked. And since then, like now I work with an ad agency that does podcast advertising and they bring in, you know, a good, like it's not paying all the bills by any means, but it's like helping sustain the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And I usually have, you know, an ad or two every week from, a sponsor like right now we have Poshmark or you know we have it's like different brands that advertise on the podcast. Gotcha, cool. All right, so sounds like a yeah a six year overnight success <laughs> of some kind. Um, and the podcast helped helped build an audience. It sounds like there was a lot of uh, I guess you could call it network effects from the people that were listening to it. Uh, the, some of them assigning it to their own patients. That that's you're kind of getting people quickly uh, mm-hmm. to start listening. Uh, obviously the content must've been good because that's why people kept listening. And, and, and I assume also as you got uh, different guests, they have audiences, right? So then they're sharing the po- your podcast with their audience and, and there's a lot of cross, cross, uh, cross mingling going on there. Totally. Yeah. That is one aspect that I forgot to mention too, is that every guest who comes on share, you know, pretty much shares it with their audience. It's not a requirement, but like people often do that. And I've definitely had, you know, as the years have gone on, especially more and more sort of public figures, big, you know, well-recognized people in this space who share with their fairly large audiences. So it's helped grow the podcast that way too. Right. Okay, so let, let's let's dive back into some of the business stuff because uh, I know that's what the main reason people are listening to this podcast is for the tactics and strategy side of this. So, uh, as far as for your individual business, um, for the online course side of it, uh, I know your current model. You have a one-time payment of four hundred and twenty-nine dollars, uh, and then you also have a payment plan of uh, three payments of one hundred and fifty-seven dollars. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
And where, where did you, how did you come to that, those numbers? Did, was that, uh, that, has that evolved over time? Is that something you think is going to stick for a while? Yeah, honestly, it was really trial and error. It was kind of like, I mean, because everything I had read and learned about pricing, you know, I did a lot of research about online marketing and online course sales before I started my course or when I was planning to launch it. And really, it seemed like everybody's sort of the consensus was just like, throw a price at the wall and see if it sticks, you know? And so like, that's basically what I did. Um, I had, you know, had no experience making an online course before. And so I felt like, you know, this is sort of a pilot project. Like this is, I'm testing this to see if it even works, you know, because I was used to working with clients one-on-one and knew that that worked, but I was kind of like, I don't know if I can translate these skills or these practices into this online program. I'm going to do my best and see what happens. So the first price that I threw out was just kind of like an introductory price to like, because I knew that the people who are going to come in first were going to probably be my super fans. The people who were really excited to work with me had been listening to me for a long time um, and maybe hadn't had the opportunity to be in New York City where I am to work with me one on one. So um, I was like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to try to like make this a good deal for them. So I think my first price was one hundred and eighty nine dollars for a 13-week course that also has ongoing Q&A podcasts. I do a, a special um, exclusive podcast for my members every month where they get, get to ask me any question they want and I will answer them. Um, and sometimes these, <laughs> these Q&As balloon to like two hours long because so many people are asking questions. So I knew that there was like a lot that I was giving them. Um, and so I kind of settled on 189 as just like, well, you know, that's maybe like what somebody would pay me for one session at the time or something. So I was like, okay, that, you know, for the price of one session, you get all of this stuff. Like that seems like a pretty good selling point. And so I tried that. It worked really well. People, I mean, you know, my audience has obviously grown by leaps and bounds since then. So it's kind of hard to compare apples to oranges, but I think, um, I think it was a much bigger, um, people, you know, much, many more people jumped on it than I had expected to. And including like within five minutes of putting up the sales page and sending out an email saying like, hey, this is available. I had my first sale. So I was like, oh, okay. I guess people really want this. And people have been sort of waiting to buy something from me maybe because they've been listening to the podcast for years and getting a lot out of it. So um, that was the first price that I tried. And then I sort of, you know, in that pilot testing phase with the the course, I was like, tell me what, like, give me your feedback. I was collecting feedback actively from participants. And a lot of people were asking for some kind of community to connect with each other, like a, a private Facebook group or something. And so, you know, having done that sort of thing with um, my podcast, I had a uh, well, actually, I didn't even have it yet at the time, but just the sort of participating in other Facebook groups around this field, I knew what a minefield it could be because people really need a lot of uh, support and compassion and like breaking free from dieting and disordered eating is really hard and psychologically difficult. And there's just a lot of sort of safety that I would have had to create in that space. So I was like, I'm going to have to be super present in this Facebook group, I'm going to have to have a staff member probably present in this Facebook group. So what's like a fair price for that presence that we're going to have in this Facebook group per person, you know, and sort of tried to, to the best of my ability, like divide that out as like, how much time am I going to be spending in there um, per person? And, and, you know, so I think the next price that I raised it to was like 289. So it was an extra hundred bucks to have this Facebook group. Um, 
And then over time, I just kept adding because it's like, you know, every month I do one of these Q&As that's dozens of questions, you know, two dozen questions or something like that that I answer. Um, so the content of the course kept growing and growing and the value kept growing. And, you know, I've heard people say in business, like if you're if your clients are telling you, your customers are telling you that you're charging too little for something, that's when you know you probably should have upped your price like ages ago, you know, because nobody's <laughs> going to tell you until it's like really egregious. Yep. So, so, you know, I started having people tell me like, oh my God, this is a steal. You're undercharging for this. This is amazing. So I was like, okay, it's probably time to raise the price because now there's all this content. So um, so that's kind of how I ended up getting, you know, first I think it was like 329 and now it's 429 just because as the years have gone by, there's just so much more content there. And um, the Facebook group is also such a huge resource now because people can search and find threads from like years ago that might answer their question. So. Right. I I think there's a lot lot to go through there. So just to back up when you initially raised it to 289, it sounds like the main motivating reason was, well, I need this to be sustainable, right? If you're going to have staff members helping uh, and other people assisting and you spending your time on this, Mm -hmm. you can't spend yourself, if you spread yourself too thin, you're not helping anyone. So that's one part about pricing that we try to echo to people and and sort of explain and break down is that you need to charge an amount of money that allows you to be a a sustainable business. Mm Because if if you're spread too thin, if you're stressed, if you're not able to pay your own bills, and then your business falls apart, that, that's the worst thing you could do as far as helping your customers and serving them with what you're providing. And so you got to really think about that and do the math. It sounds like you did that, obviously. I did. And that's like a total mindset thing too, you know, like thinking that your business is worth it, that your time is worth it. Like that definitely took me a little bit of, you know, getting my head around that before I even decided to raise the price. So yeah, it was... That was definitely the thinking, though, was like it needs to be sustainable and I'm not going to help anyone if I burn out and can't do this anymore. Right. And the other uh, nugget in there that I, at least I heard was charge more uh, and that listen to the feedback you're getting from from customers. Uh, something I always tell people, and this happened to us too, is when people tell you, you know, our, our, this is a really good deal, like you were saying, right? When you keep hearing that phrase over and over again, that's also also known as I would have paid more. <laughs> totally. Uh, and, and for a lot of people, if you hear that over and over again, that's a, a very clear sign uh, to charge more. Um, and another, another thing you want to look at, and, and part of the problem is, okay, great. So now I know I need to charge more, but how much more? Well, the rough the rough thing we found is okay when you start getting some people complaining about it costing too much not not if you get like one every month that doesn't really mean anything but if you're getting you know a handful every month that that starts to indicate okay we we we, we've kind of hit we're in the right range we have some people saying it's too expensive and we still have some people saying this is a good deal and so that's and that's usually roughly how how we at least figured out yeah that's a great that's a great tip i think that is kind of the wheelhouse i'm in right now with it too where it's like you know definitely getting some people being like i can't afford it this is too much but then still also some people being like this is a total steal and in between people are just happy with it so you know it's never gonna be perfect pricing is one of those things that it it really depends on the context of someone's situation Mm -hmm. try to do your best um, the other thing you mentioned was when you first launched the online course that within five minutes you had your first sale, which is awesome. I want people to keep in mind though, that that is because you had an audience built up. That's not because you launched a course into the, into the world and then magically you got lucky and somebody signed up. <clears throat> this no. was 
something you built up over time. And that's something else we try to emphasize to people is that it's very difficult to sell things if you don't have any audience and that you should really focus on building an audience before you sell anything. And so it sounds like you did that initially through some journalism and then also through the podcast, which both, you know, both those things don't cost the, the, the your member or your audience any money. It lets them connect with you, get value from you, which is a good place to start, get trust. And then you can provide optional things that they could buy. And that, that's kind of a good roadmap that we try to lay out for folks. Totally. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I just, I built it and they came, you know, like, <laughs> no. right. it was, yeah, I had to build the audience for a long time first. Right. So uh, let's move on to another topic of uh, cancellations and refunds, which is never fun for anybody. Mm-hmm. What are you doing right now strategically to help keep, um, you know, if, I guess in your case, since people are paying one-time charges, they're not really canceling so much, but for people who are doing um, multiple one-time payments, what happens when someone's in between, you know, the, they've made one payment, but they owe you two more and they say, you know what, I don't, I don't want this anymore or, or, or I don't want to pay anymore. How do you, how are you handling that right now? Yeah, it's been tricky, you know, because since we started the payment plan, which I started because we were getting those folks saying like, oh, it's just a bit too much to invest this sum all at once. And so I broke it up into three payments so that it could maybe help people, more people access the material. Um, And it's been it's been doing really well, the payment plan. But definitely we've had quite a, you know, not quite a few, but like, you know, maybe one percent or something of people who um, will sign up and like halfway through or one payment in just be like, I don't want this anymore. Or they'll, their credit card will change and they just won't like, they won't update it in the system. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's been a challenge, you know, we definitely have, like, I have my administrative assistant, um, reach out to them usually. And there's also those automatic reminders that go out from member space saying like, Hey, you know, your card failed. Can you update it? Um, which has had some success at bringing, uh, like retaining people. Um, but I think often in addition to that, like a personal connection, like a personal touch of my assistant being like, Hey, is there anything I can help you with? Or, um, you know, reminding them or whatever, um, also brings some people back. But honestly, there were, there were just, you know, a number of people who were like, I can't afford it anymore, or I'm not using it. You know, I think there's a phenomenon with a lot of online courses. And I know I've done this myself, too, where you buy a course, and then you just don't actually use it. You Mm -hmm. know, you're like, you think you're going to have time to do it, and then you really don't. Um, So that was happening. And we actually just recently changed the language on the payment plan page to say, um, this is, you know, this payment plan, because I think people were treating it like a membership. People were treating it like, oh, it's like $157 a month and you can cancel any time because they didn't realize that it was a payment plan and not a membership and sort of what the distinction between those things was. Right. So we changed the language on the payment plan page where we said, you know, this is... um we're, like we've broken up the cost of this course into three payments for your convenience. Um, by signing up, you agree to make all three payments. And right. so far, so good with that. Like we haven't had anyone default on their payments yet since then. And that was a couple months ago. So Awesome. Yeah. Have you ever considered uh, adding either another branch or maybe changing part of your course to do ongoing recurring payments? I have thought about that, definitely. Like, because there's, especially with the um, monthly Q&A, it seems like it would lend itself well to that, where if people pay like a monthly fee and they just get to listen to that, um, or maybe, you know, they get that plus the Facebook group or something. So I'm definitely toying around with that idea. And I may do something like that in the course update that I'm working on now. So 
in like the spring of 2019, I'm planning a big update where I'm going to actually like um, expand all the modules of the course. There's 13 modules. And right now it's kind of like you listen to like a, you know, 20 minute lecture and then there's like optional further listening you can do and further reading. And there's a workbook with journal exercises. And my plan is to like make the modules where it's like a longer lecture where it incorporates all the sort of further listening and further reading material into the actual lecture and even incorporates the journal exercises into the lecture. So all people have to really do is listen to the lecture and they get time to do the journal exercises there or they could just do them in their head and, you know, use that as as something if they're really pressed for time or whatever. Um, So that's like a big overhaul and I'm having to have my designer redo the workbooks that we made. And so for that, we're definitely going to raise the price of the course a little bit to account for all that extra content and time that's going into it and potentially like break it off at that point too to do some kind of like lower cost options. There's another thought that I have too where people could maybe get just the modules and do it as like a self-study program. And then, you know, the because really the ongoing cost for us is the Q&As, which take up a lot of my time and the Facebook group, which takes up my time and my staff's time. So, um, you know, having that, like having just the the course itself be an option and then people can upgrade to having the further support if they want to. Right. Makes sense. So uh, I guess the last question I have is when you're, what you're doing, you've obviously been successful. Are you trying to sort of maintain what you've done so far? Or are you still trying to grow as far as size and revenue in the business? Yeah. I mean, I definitely would always love to grow in terms of size and revenue. Um, I am, you know, it, it definitely seems like there's kind of slow and steady growth uh, year over year with the course as more people come in to my audience because I have a sales funnel and my email list, you know, when people join the email list, they get a series of emails talking about the general concepts that I cover in my work and sort of introducing them to my world and then offering the course as a way to continue and deepen their understanding of the stuff. Um, And also on the podcast, I do like self ads now for the course, you know, pretty consistently. Um, So those are ways that we're, you know, still growing and hoping to continue to grow. I also have a book that's coming out in late 2019. And I'm hoping that that's, you know, of course, I'm hoping that's like an international bestseller. But, uh, (laughs) you know, whatever, whatever level we sort of achieve, I think it's going to bring in a bigger audience for my work and hopefully bring more people into the course then as well, because the book is really sort of about the mindset stuff. It's it's about diet culture and like what that is, why we all are so caught up in it, the problems with dieting, like why, why diets don't work, why um, intuitive eating is actually better for your health and well-being and you know, not to mention like saving you time and money and energy that you would have been pouring into these futile diets. So, you know, that's all the book is kind of just like the laying the groundwork and helping people get through some of the mental um, hurdles to breaking free from diet culture. But then the online course is like an extension of that is, you know, how to put that into practice in your life, how to actually like how to actually stop dieting. So. Right. And as far as growth goes, because it, it is, I think a lot of people uh, who's, who've achieved success say, yeah, I, I want to keep growing, obviously. But sometimes I have a little pushback on that because is, is, the, is, the, is the goal growth indefinitely? Because obviously there has to be a stopping point somewhere. So have you, have you considered where that point might be? What that yeah, looks like? that's a good question because, yeah, like part of what makes the course 
good, or at least the Facebook community as part of the course good, is that like there's a manageable number of people there. <laughs> so people right. can actually interact with each other and I can sort of stay on top of what people are posting and my staff can stay on top of it. But, you know, if there were like suddenly 10,000 people in that group, I don't know if that would be as um, helpful for anyone really. So, you know, I think, I think that as we grow, we'll certainly have to change and shift. Like the course might take on a new iteration as it grows where maybe we do cohorts instead of having it be an evergreen uh, open all the time thing. Maybe I like, you know, close the cart for it and run it a couple times a year as a live course. And so it, you know, keeps a manageable number of people in it. And we have like special Facebook groups or communities or whatever for that particular cohort. That's one option I've thought about. Um, another option I've thought about is just like going back to not having a Facebook group and just having it be, you know, the self-study stuff and the Q&A and that's it. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, I think definitely as we grow, it's going to have to change and, and grow with where I go in my business. And I'm very much uh, sort of, I think my, my approach to business is much more of a company of one, you know, Paul Jarvis sort of style than it is like a um, multi-million dollar, like giant staff, you know, company kind of style, right? Like I, I certainly right. have a team that I work with, but I, you know, my own, I'm my own employee, like I'm my only employee of my corporation. Um, and you know, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist. That's my first career. That's my first love. And honestly, I'd love to just like preserve as much time as I can for that and for the podcast and do the online course as like a way to connect with people and serve people. But, you know, if it becomes this thing where it's taking over time that I could be spending on these creative pursuits that really like, I know that the podcast and my writing are some of the most valuable things I have to offer, like just the feedback that I get for the podcast every single day. People are like, you're, you're changing my life. You're saving my life. Like, this is amazing, you know? And so like, I sort of can tell that that's like the direction I need to be going in or stay going in. So I just want to make sure that like the courses support that and further that and extend on that without taking away from that. All right. sounds like you're following an intuitive business uh, philosophy as well. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think we'll end there. Uh, Christy, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to hang out here and uh, give everybody uh, useful advice. Thanks so much, Ward. It's a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Member Maker Podcast has been brought to you by Memberspace, the software that helps you turn your audience into a membership business. You can learn more by visiting memberspace.com.